So we have had six, like almost six different drummers over the last six weeks. This morning it's Eric Ferrari. He's a <laughs> 80. Eric is full-on 80s rock drummer. I want you to know. So, so I'm sporting the, the white with the turquoise. You know, it's like 80s rock, right? No. No, actually, uh, I, I told James I'd wear this this morning. This is the youth camp shirts. It says, what is love? And it's got a heart with a puzzle piece coming into it and things like that. I don't just unbutton my shirt in front of you guys because it's creepy. <laughs> what? But you know, now you'll know. So when you can go, why would you wear a bright turquoise shirt under a white shirt? What's wrong with you? Nothing, all right? Nothing. I'm just, oh, oh. I know, Noise. People on the podcast are going to be like, what in the world is going on there? I'm being mugged. That's what's happening. Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. You have a smartphone. You download an app called Uversion. And on that app, you click on live, it'll bring us up by GPS, so you can know, uh, you'll, you'll get all the sermon notes, all the verses, everything that's in there, uh, so you can follow along as well. Now, as, as we are doing the, the Song of Solomon, I have, anybody get the, our email updates, by the way? Okay, a lot of people are like, what's going on at Element? Go to our website, ourelement.org. You can sign up for what's called email updates. We will give you, every week you'll get one short little email, usually from me, that tells you kind of what's going on around here. And in this week's, if you, can I get the thing back there so I can see it? Uh, the, this, this week I, I put this picture out. So if you don't get the email update, you wouldn't have seen this, but I want you all to see this. Apparently right out in front of my house, there is this street sign that looks like this. I had no idea. My friend John Warren's driving by it, and he's like, he's like, click, and he sends it to me. He goes, did you know this is in front of your house? And I go, no, maybe I would have stole it if I wouldn't have. <laughs> wouldn't have stolen That's That's a sin. Don't go steal it now since you know where it is or anything like that. Evil people. All right, why don't you stand on the reading to God's word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, and it says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who take your words to heart. For those of us who are married, that we would enjoy the life with our spouses. For those who are single and maybe looking to get married someday, we ask that you would bring someone into their life that loves you first. And that can then bring great joy into their lives. Father, for those in this room who maybe have been widowed, uh, we ask that you would instill great hope into them that you are the God who comes and redeems and loves us and calls your church your bride. And all of these things, we ask that we would live in great hope, honoring who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. That's why that picture is so funny. If you're new, you're like, it doesn't make any sense. Ah, now it does. Song of Solomon. That's what we're going through. We are in the summer of love. Today I'm going to tag along to the back of what Eric kind of said last week, the standard of beauty, how to see your spouse and the responsiveness that that provides. I actually had somebody ask me a couple weeks ago, about. they said, how do you do that? How do you see your spouse as your standard of beauty? What things need to take place? Well, this morning what I'm going to do is try and help answer that for you, how to make that actually work. Uh, I think today I might make everybody in the room mad, so I'm, I'm told you like sermons like that, so yay, 
Good for you. You'll really enjoy this one. <laughs> All right. We're, today we're going to move forward a whopping two verses. I know uh, James and Eric do both do whole chapters. You get me and I go back to like two verses. Whatever. Just deal with me. As, as we proceed through this, you have to remember what we keep coming back to. In our culture, our culture sees sex as a god. We give our money to it. We study it through pictures and magazines. We give our time to it. We worship it as a god. But if you are a believer, Jesus is God and nothing else. But because our culture views it the way that it does, many religious people have said, therefore, sex has to be dirty because of what our culture has done to it. Sex is not dirty. What sex is, is sex is a gift. It is given by God to his people to steward, to enjoy, and in the context of marriage, to enjoy frequently. It is to be treasured and saved and given and cultivated in marriage. And the Song of Solomon is a lot about this intimacy. Uh, today, again, hopefully will be very practical for you on the, on the whole idea of this union, of this coming together. Next week, we'll actually begin to move into some new territory, some stuff we haven't talked about. They actually get into fight next week. Ooh, like we've never experienced that, right? Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see what they do since we never fight or anything like that. Uh, today, again, will be, be totally PG, so sh- you should be okay. You don't need to giggle like a junior high girl. You're all going to be... Unless you are a junior high girl, then giggle all you want. But... Boy, you're going to be a tough crowd this morning, I can tell. So, Song of Songs, chapter 4. What happens, if you want to open there, Song of Songs 4. Solomon praises his bride for everything about her. Eric covered this last week. He talks about her hair. Her, her eyes are like doves. Her hair is long and black. Her teeth are white and smooth. Her lips are red and lovely. Her cheeks are red. Her neck is erect, and her breasts are full and youthful. And Solomon sums up his bride with these words. Chapter 4, verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, do you think that there is actually no flaw in her at all? If, if you watch you know, television shows or you look at magazines with women in them, do you, do you think there's no flaw in them? Photoshop. Exactly, Photoshop. It's just why every woman goes, those aren't real, whatever those are, right? You can make your own conclusions. I don't know what those are. I'm not, you know. It's like, oh, that's airbrush, this, that, right. We think they're, they're, everybody's got to have a flaw. I mean, Solomon's bride, from her eyes to her body, no blemish. You know, of course not. But this is how he chose to see her, the standard of beauty. This is how all men should see their brides as their standard of beauty. I talk to you about my wife a lot. I tell you she's she's wonderful, how great she is. Do you really think she's as perfect as I say she is? Of course she is. (laughs) Of course. That's, that's how I'm supposed to see her. Gentlemen, this is why you are never supposed to look at pornography. You'll be trading your standard of beauty for something or someone else. When you see your wife as your standard of beauty and no one else, as you age and she ages, the older you get, the more attractive they will be. The standard of beauty is your spouse. If she's got three toes and spits when she talks, that's sexy for you. All right. The truth of the matter may be, it may be eyes bloodshot, hair gray and patchy, teeth yellow and missing, lips thin and cracked, cheeks sunken in like the Titanic, neck skin like Jabba the Hutt, breasts fully given over to gravity's call. But what you see is eyes like doves, hair long and black, teeth white and smooth, lips red and lovely, neck erect, breastful and youthful. I tell my wife, she is sexy all the time. I don't ever want her to think that her body is something I don't want to see, because I do all the time. <laughs> and she's like, stop it, bit all the time. She is appealing to me, and I want to express that accordingly so she understands. 
The problem is a lot of women, seemingly more after they get married, have lots of hang-ups about their own body. If you have an appendectomy, the scar is like two inches wide, and they feel like it's three feet wide, and it covers their entire body. Maybe she has had children, and then she, thinks, she sees these stretch marks, and they thinks they're just, oh, these are just terrible. Or she looks at her belly and says, oh, it's like a plowed field. This is what it looks like. Or the thighs are too, too big or too, or too skinny or the breasts are too large or too small or something. Men, this is why you must tell your wives she is beautiful all the time. And that is what Solomon does here. He tells her she is beautiful over and over and over. And I've got to tell you, what, what you see in Solomon's life is that he starts like this. We, we believe that, song, that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon when he was a young man, wrote most of his Proverbs as a young man. In the middle of his life, he goes completely off the rails. And at the end of his life, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. I believe he writes the Ecclesiastes in repentance, looking back at all the places where he started and where he went to in his life, and then what he came back to at the end and said, I wish I would have stuck with what I knew. I wish I would have followed God like he told me to follow him. And so what I want you to do is I want you to open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I will show you what Solomon does at the end of his life as he looks back on all the things he once knew and walked away from and wishes he could go back and just do again and the advice he gives to us as a people. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 7. At the end of his life, he comes back and he starts with this. He says, he says, go eat your bread with joy. Literally, this should be translated as eat your food with gladness. Solomon keeps coming back in Ecclesiastes to the idea of food and joy and love. Now, food, this is not gluttony. In America, we invent the buffet, all-you-can-eat shrimp. Some of you guys know how much shrimp you can eat, all right? And that's not always a good thing. I'm going to get my money's worth. Well, you know, sometimes you don't need to. You've got to let, let that go. What he's saying is you need to eat well. He comes to this idea. He's at the end of his life, and so he's thinking we are all going to die. So what do we do with our lives? Well, you should get together for a barbecue. That's what you should do. Get a dead animal. Lay it on a grill. Worship God. You do it with a sense of humor because this is practice for heaven. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. That's a command from God. God, for God has already approved what you do. So God's people should drink good wine among good friends and avoid any alcohol consumption that is disconnected from joy. This would be getting, drinking to get drunk, drinking in excess, drinking merely to stave off depression. Those are all sin. But he says that you should be able to drink your wine with joy. This is one of the reasons that we are taking you wine tasting, because we want to help you to understand how to do this in a redeemed way. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a really good party. I'm not talking about a drunken kegger with light beer and two-for-one pizzas because that's all sin all over it. But this is a place where, you're, where your stomach is full and so is your heart where you spend time with good friends. Anybody ever go to something like that and you leave going, oh, yeah, that's exactly what Solomon is talking about. If you are someone who says, well, I'm never going to eat good food and I'm never going to have any good drink, I'm never going to spend any money, that doesn't make you holy. It makes you weird. All right? Holiness by abstention is not holiness. And I, and I told you this before. If you only drank good wine or good beer, you'd never be a drunk because you couldn't afford it. It's too expensive to buy good wine and good beer. Alcohol, money, food, a life lived offered to Jesus, this is what makes it good. Jesus didn't abstain. He does it all in a redeemed way. And because God offers, God's in control of this life and the life to come, living shows that we love God. Living shows we love him. People who don't know how to live, they freak out about all the freedom God has given to his people. So he says, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. In verse 8 he says, let your garments be always white. All right? White. There you go. That's why I wore it over the, not, not trying to do the Jersey Shore look, you know, with the turquoise and the white. Some of you guys have no idea what that means. Good for you. I'm very happy. What, what day does, does a woman wear white? 
Our wedding day, exactly. In Revelation, Jesus' church is, is clothed in white. This is purity. This is righteousness. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. How many of you like to see the man that you love dressed up? Maybe in a white shirt, just dressed up and looking good. Yeah? Guys, look. that They like that, so do it. Where you, where you shave and you shower. It's important. Take her out to a nice dinner. Now, don't raise your hands, but I, how many men, maybe you, maybe your men dressed a little different while you were dating than they do now. You know, maybe they show up for dinner now and they're wearing, like, sweats from an elastic waistband because they intend to use it all. You know, that's not the same. What happens is too many men, they will court their wives until they get married. When marriage is an upgrade, now you get to do more stuff, but you always continue to court her. Now, how many ladies, how many are you okay with that? Is that okay? Guys always courting you saying, yeah. Okay, good. There you go. Keep courting her. Solomon and Ecclesiastes keeps saying, we are going to die. So we need to hurry and live how God calls us to live. And in this context, it seems to indicate that God's people ought to dress up for one another, have lavish parties, celebrate God's grace, enjoy God's people, make the most of God's gift of life, especially what he'll get to in a moment, the gift of your spouse. In verse 8, he says, let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, there's great debate about this verse. I think it simply means that in this hot and dry climate, God's people were to take care of themselves. You take the money and you buy the things so your skin would feel healthy and it would look good. Now, women have all sorts of stuff all over the house. My wife's got every bathroom you go in, you got little things with smelly things in it. So I'm afraid to go near them, open it up, it might get on me and I might smell like that. So I'm, I'm a little afraid of some of it. It's all over the house. Guys, what he says to you, since ladies just naturally do it, guys, use lotion. You don't touch that lovely woman with scaly hands. You brush your teeth, you eat a breath mint, you use deodorant, you shave so you don't rip her skin off with the sandpaper that is your face. If you have a beard and you like your beard, you make it soft. You put things in it so it's soft. Now, ladies, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question here. Uh, how many of you like to go out again with a man that, that's smelling good and clean and everything, right? That's good? Okay. Now, guys, how many of you have ever gone on a date or maybe, uh, maybe you're married or maybe you just like a girl and you sit next to her and then you can smell what they smell like with all their girly, fruity stuff? Anybody? That smell right? And you're just like, nothing beats that. It is just the best smell in the world. It is a gift of the grace of God that women smell the way that they do. It's like, oh, oh we can never replicate that. It's, it's amazing. You get, a, you get a godly woman that, that dresses up and shaves her legs and her pits, not like those ungodly French women. You know, she, she, I'm going to make everybody mad this morning. You take care of yourself. You eat good. You laugh. You drink. You love. This is being a Christian. And what he said is all this leads into marriage. In verse 9, he says, So enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He brings it all together, knowing that he had left that and wished he never did. He says, All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. God's gift is the spouse that he gives you, and you are to spend your life seeing them as your standard of beauty, offering them respect. And apparently most of you guys need to buy a white shirt. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. Go back to Song of Songs chapter 4. So this is a guy who, through the first four chapters so far, you've seen him do this for his bride. He finds value of the gift that God has placed in her. And Solomon sees her. He knows her deeply. And in chapter 4, verse 7, again, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And the rest of the chapter, he goes on and then encourages her and loves her. And in chapter 4, verse 16, she responds to his advances, his love for her. And she says, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, believe it or not, that is sex. In my PG version, the best way I can say it is she has invited him to enter 
her. That's what she says. She feels valued and loved. She opens herself to him. Now, ladies, if your husband saw and treated you as Solomon treated his bride, would intimacy be something you long for because he treats you with dignity and respect? It, it should. It should. Now, on the other side, because I just yelled at guys for a little bit, now I'll talk to you ladies for a minute, and this is where I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, you, in your husband making you a standard of beauty and being lovely, you know what would help him to do that? You actually being lovely. That would be, be very good. It, it, makes, it makes it easier for men to love you. Now, don't shoot the messenger, but I'm just going to go with this. And so, all right. And this encompasses two different areas, two different areas that are very important to guys. Uh, one is in regard to how you present yourself physically. All right? This is, this is important. His standard of beauty is to be you, but you, believe it or not, can help him with that. How do you eat? Do you exercise? How do you present yourself to your man? Are you trying to be visually stimulating to him? 1 Samuel 16, 7, 2 Chronicles 5, 12 tells you the heart is better than outward appearances. Yes, it is. And the focus on outward appearances can be overdone. But God has made men to be visually stimulated. So are you being visually stimulated? Uh, Joseph Dillow, in his excellent commentary on the Song of Solomon, writes, The letters MRS before a woman's name do not stand for miserable rut of sloppiness or Miss Rummage Sale. That Joseph Dillow guy, oh, I can't believe him. All right, Lois Bird, a woman, she writes this, take a look at nine out of ten women pushing carts in a shopping in a supermarket. They look like survivors of a shipwreck wearing clothes distributed by the Red Cross. They spend more time selecting a head of cabbage than a new shade of lipstick. Don't shoot the messenger. After marriage, many women will dress up more for going out with their friends, going to work, going to school, than they do for their own husband. And men like to be dressed up for. We like to feel that we are the special ones in your life. A few years ago, I did a wedding in Florida, Longboat Key. Nice white sand beaches. It was, it was really, really nice. So before we went, my wife wanted a new dress because it's pretty warm there. So we went out looking for dresses. And yes, I went shopping with her. And yes, I was bored, but I smiled and acted like I loved it. So we're, we're out looking for dresses. And she finds a couple. She's trying one on. She goes, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't wear this. And so I go, show me. So she comes walking out, and it's, and it's a little higher and a little lower, and it's just awesome is what it was. <laughs> and she goes, she goes, I can. And I said, yeah. I said, you can't wear that out of the house, but we are buying it. <laughs> and, and you're going to wear that around for me. And, and we bought it. And th- this is the whole idea of being visually stimulating to your guy. Uh, the second thing, the second thing is, it's great advice, okay, practical. The second thing is you must treat your guy with respect. Uh, Ephesians 5.33 says, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The NIV says it as the wife must respect her husband. You ask most men you want to be loved or respected, they'll say both. But respect actually ends up being more important. Men want to be respected. Uh, We see there's a lot of women who fall in love with disrespectable men. and They get married and wonder why their lives are just crazy messes. Well, it's because they marry disrespectable men. Titus 2 says you should love your men, but you should also respect him because your children are going to end up like him. If you don't want photocopies of that guy walking around, you don't marry him. Men want to feel respected by their wives, which does mean for guys you must be respectable. You cannot treat your wife like garbage all day long and then expect her respect to come back to you. Respect comes from you learning to live and be like Jesus. It is not from verbal, emotional, physical abuse. But there are guys who do treat their wives with dignity and respect, and they do not ever feel that respect in return. So my questions for you guys today, which I give you questions every week in the Song of Solomon, ladies, on the way home, ask your husbands, what can I do or how can I treat you so you feel respected? Okay? Write that down. Write that down. 
Don't worry about getting the podcast tomorrow on the way home. What can I do or how can I treat you so you feel respected? Guys, on the way home, ask your wife. Say, what can I do so that you feel like you are my standard of beauty? Ask those two questions. And again, guys, you can make, your job, make her job easier by being respectable, and you can give her something to talk about. My husband is nice. He's great. He does this. He does that. You don't make the only thing that she can say about you is that you walk upright unlike the other animals. All right? You love her. You give her something. Because it is like gravity. Lovely women are easier to love, and lovely, respectable men are easier to respect. Husband and wife, that the scriptures are called to be one flesh. If you realize that there actually is just one of you, you become allies. You are together. The oneness of that relationship makes you live in harmony because you are one. And guys who are abusive and looking at pornography and cheating, they are fools who are punching themselves in the face all day long. It is complete sin. It is complete folly. It is complete foolishness. And women who nag and gossip and complain and don't meet the needs of her man are digging a pot to stew in for the rest of their lives. And it is complete sin, folly, and foolishness. Now leave your finger in Song of Songs 4 and flip over to Luke chapter 22. What I want to do is relate this in a larger sense to some of the things that Jesus said. Husband and wife, this should be friendships as well in this, but we're to be those who serve each other. We speak the best to each other. We honor each other. This is something the gospel constantly reminds us to do as a people, how a life is to be lived. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. And Jesus said, it says this, a dispute also arose among them. That's the disciples. So a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, This just kind of screams. They kind of missed the whole point of living with Jesus for three years that they did when this is their main argument. Well, which of us is the greatest? (laughs) Okay, maybe you don't think it's funny. I do. Uh, But what happens here is this is actually what happens in marriages. Subconsciously, we get in fights because we're trying to figure out who is the greatest. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. This would be the systems that do not obey the way of God. These are systems based in human weakness. Those who are not interested in God's way, but only interested in their own way. So the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So they have all this power, and they abuse it, and yet they call themselves benefactors. This is the way of power and authority, who is stronger, who is faster, who can dominate, who can kick and push the other, who is better. Verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am a among you as the one who serves. So Jesus, maker of all things, comes as a servant to his people. A world system says you conquer, control, dominate. Jesus says, I came to give away. Jesus' way is a totally different way of how we do things today. To follow the way of Jesus, you cannot buy into how everybody else does things. It is not how your favorite movie, your favorite TV show tells you how to act. It is not power, control, and domination, and who can manipulate who, and who is better than who. Jesus says it's not about that. It's about serving and giving. Now, uh, I like to go to the lake. A few years ago, my wife and I bought a boat. We did that because she loves me, and she is awesome, by the way. I don't know if I said that already enough this morning, but she's she's great. And so one day we're at the lake. I don't remember what when it actually was, it's hot. And then I'm like a bad computer. I just kind of lose all my memory and when it gets all warm like that. So uh, we're we're at the lake. It's on a weekend, a whole bunch of people there. And so we're going to pull out of the water at at the lake. And when you do that, there's a whole lot of boats up there. And there's this one guy. Have you ever been to the lake and seen somebody like this? He's just all over the place. And he finally gets his boat over to the dock on the side.
outside, and he has his wife and his kids there, and they're hanging on like this. And so he does this whole juggling act, all right? It's, it's really funny to watch. He gets out of the boat, goes up to his car, gets in the car, backs his car into the water, gets out of the car, gets out, walks out, hops in his boat, and then tells his wife to get out of the boat and have her go get in the car, and he drives his boat up onto the trailer because nobody else can do it but him. Right? So he gets him on the trailer, he cinches it up, and he tells his wife to pull out. She starts to pull out, and the boat gets all cockeyed on the way out. Right? Now, again, the guy has done all the work to this moment, okay? It's all his fault. But he gets up, boop, cockeyed. He goes ballistic, screaming, cussing, yelling, nah! and his wife's like, oh, what's going on? She gets out of the car, runs over to see what's going on, and he's right in her face. And he's screaming and yelling at her and pushing her back up against the car. Rah! Makes everybody else in their boats uncomfortable. Uh, a little bit ago, I was in the grocery store. And yes, I go, not just when I'm hungry. And so I'm, I'm in the grocery store. And there's this guy, and, and apparently he was looking for something to, that his wife asked, asked him to get. And, and ladies, I'll tell you this. A lot of guys have this sense about us. We can see, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but controlling women. They look a certain way. They talk a certain way. They act a certain way. Every guy's going, yeah, I know what that looks like, but I'm not going to move my head right now. All right, okay, so, so we all know, all right? Uh, and, and this guy comes walking over with this thing, and, and it's apparently not the thing that she wanted. And so she starts to lay into him. Now, and, and me, I'm like, ooh. You know, I'm, I, some people call it eavesdropping. I call it sermon preparation. That's <laughs> so if you're ever in the store and you see me walking by, you're going, <laughs> you just made me an illustration, just letting you know. So, so I walk, and she's saying things like this. You never listen. It was right in front of you. You wonder why I don't want to be with you. Words that cut very deep, both of them manipulating painful barrage of these verbal missiles going back and forth. Now, usually if, if I'm irritated with my wife, I run into situations like this all the time, and I go home and I go, I just love you. you know, you're just so wonderful. But these two responses, and there are a lot more, and at some point we probably all responded like this, but these are power and control and authority. I mean, the responses could have been totally different. The guy not able to get his boat on the thing, you know, he says, yeah, he could have said, oh, I, I couldn't aim the boat. Uh, that's kind of like why the toilet's always messy, because I can't aim. You know, maybe he could have made a joke about it and said, yeah, you know, it's, it's my fault. Or in the store, the wife could have said, no, that's the right thing. How about we go get the right thing together? That she could have done that. But the reaction of them is the same reaction that most of us have in marriages. Our first reaction is, how dare you? You have offended me. And that is the way of the world that says strength comes from power and control and intimidation and conquest. There is no serving. There is no love. I will tell you the truth. The weakest thing that people do when they're offended is respond that way. That's the weakest thing you can do. The hardest and the strongest thing is responding in honesty and vulnerability and love. And yet we so often come at each other in our perceived strength that's actually weakness and failure as opposed to a weakness that is actually great strength. I mean, the last thing on our mind is, is how can we help you? Our first thing is like, oh, you hurt me. You know, I'm, now I'm going to get you. And Jesus says there's two paths. The way of the world, which appears strong, which is very weak, and Jesus' way, which appears weak, but actually requires great strength. In John 12, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man being glorified, that God's power is going to be displayed in a new way through him. In John 12, 23 and 24, it says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So God's glory is going to be shown. How's it going to happen? Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So this great thing is going to put on the glory and display of, of who God is. And how's it going to happen? Something has to die. Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. 
but something has to die. He says a death's going to take place, and that will mean his surrender, a death, so there's a new way of life. Now, our view is that the person that we are married to is there to serve us. It's why we react the way that we do. But what if we died to that? What if we died to that and received a whole new view? Jesus' view, which is to serve. And what would that look like? Well, who can apologize faster? Who can serve more? Who can love more? Who can be quicker in the response of redemption and grace to each other? A new way that is actually better. In the first four chapters of the Song of Solomon, this is what you see. This is how they respond to each other. It is serving and giving and honor and dignity and love and respect. This is what they give to each other. And this is what he gives her through the entire chapter 4. And at the end of her feeling this way, what her husband gives to her, she says in chapter 4, verse 16, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And she responds that way, and she gives him dignity and love and respect back to him. He doesn't feel bad for having to initiate their intimacy. He doesn't say, well, you only want to because I said something. You never want to do it if I didn't say anything. He doesn't pull that. Solomon Bride, she gives him dignity and respect. She offers herself. And in response, in chapter 5, verse 1, so he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. If, you know what I mean. He says, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. If, you know what I mean. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. If, you know what I mean. He says, I drank my wine with my milk. If, you know what I mean. That's what he says. And this is the responsiveness of love and how it's supposed to be shared between a husband and a wife. Mutual respect, mutual standards of beauty with each other. And the most amazing thing about these couple of verses is what happens at the end of chapter 5, verse 1. A new speaker is introduced just this once in the text, and the speaker says, Eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, some people say, oh, that's the friends. That's the we coming in again. But that would actually be kind of awkward. If you and your spouse are making hot, steamy love, and your friends poke in the room and go, Hey, nice! It's great! You'd be like, uh, you're not my friend anymore, I'm sorry. Or if not, then you're just really creepy and weird, okay? So one, one or the other. Eat friends and be drunk with love. This is someone giving divine approval to this couple's interaction and their intimacy and their lovemaking. The writer indicates that this is God himself because only God himself could pronounce such a great affirmation. God is the most intimate observer of all. It's almost as if they're living the way that Christ calls them to, and God says, yes, that's how you do it. In chapters 1 through 3, they are mutually giving to each other, back and forth, dignity and hope and love. You get to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Solomon praises his bride. He offers the concern for her emotional state of her life. In verse 8, they get frisky. He promises her a honeymoon in the mountains of Lebanon. It takes him a year to actually do it, but he promises it and eventually does it. In verses 9 through 11, they caress. They snuggle. Their hearts beat faster. Verses 12 to 15, they're still caressing. They are, they are getting passionate with each other. In verse 16, she invites him to enter her. In uh, 5.1, they consummate their love. And the God of all creation pronounces approval on everything that has taken place as they offer to each other back and forth. Now think of how opposite that is to how movies or TV shows or maybe how most of our culture actually engages and views sex. It's completely different. God calls us to something that is so much greater and so much more wonderful than we could ever imagine. 
Now, as we bring this to a close, what I want to do is give you something extremely practical for you. Because we believe that the Song of Solomon in regard to service and romance has at least four ingredients. There's more than this, but I want to give these to you in a practical way to help you to understand how to bring a little bit of service and a little bit of romance into your relationships, okay? The first one is there is an element of the unexpected, an element of the unexpected. In Song of Songs 1, 16 and 17, Solomon is putting their bedroom together and he makes it from cedars from Lebanon to surprise his bride. In chapter 7, he surprises her again with the vacation to the North Mountains. Maybe even a single rose when there's no reason for it is romantic. And so, man, you find out what they like and you do something unexpected. For years, I mean, ever since my wife and I have been married, she wanted to go to Italy. And so after 18 years and saving, I finally took her to Paris and to Italy last year. And, and I was the greatest thing in the world for like a week and a half. It was, it was wonderful. I need to do it again because you need to get there. So in all minutes, the unexpected. Second thing is it includes dating. It includes dating. In chapter 2, 8 through 17, he takes his bride on a date before the wedding. In chapter 7 and 8, he still takes her out on dates. So the question is, is do you date your spouse? I mean, a date is not saying, you know, what do you want to eat? You know, there's nothing in the fridge. A, a date isn't saying, hey, there's nothing on TV. Let's go to a movie. A date is where you plan an evening together. If you have kids, you get a babysitter. And, and guys, you take her out. You don't say, where do you want to eat? Because I don't know. You tell me. You, you, you plan something. You take her. She doesn't like it. She can find some on the menu. But you take her. You, you go. That's, that's what you do. A date is one husband, one wife out together. We believe in gospel community. We want you going out on, on dates with, with multiple friends. Okay, so, you, so you take out all your friends and couples. You all go out together and have great double, triple, whatever the number 10 is, dates You know, together. Octodates, I don't know, whatever. You guys go out and do that. But a true date between you and, your, you and your spouse is just you and your spouse. You go out together. Number three, it includes the impractical. It includes the impractical. Cedars from Lebanon were not practical for bedroom construction, but Solomon did it anyway. Flying to Paris and Italy, not practical, but practical can be a killer to romance. I am not advocating irresponsibility. I do not want Dave Ramsey to come in here and shoot me or anything like that. Okay? You don't leave your six-month-old at home with your dog as the babysitter. You, you don't do stuff like that. But sometimes if you're only practical, it will kill love and romance. Maybe, maybe you need a new hose for the yard or a new ironing board for the house. Sometimes the shirt you saw her trying on over and over and over is a much better investment. And the fourth thing it includes creativity. Creativity. Uh, Solomon's very creative. Maybe you feel like you're not that creative. Uh, you know, maybe art to you is the guy that makes your sandwiches at the subway. You know, I, I, I don't know. Solomon, what he does is he speaks to poetry, he buys her trinkets, he encourages variety in bed, all the while offering her dignity. And so if you have a hard time being creative, they now have this thing called Google. And you can type in creative dates. And you'll get a, don't do some of them, some are probably just really lame, but you might find something that go, oh, I could do that. And you do that. If you are in a rut, you do the hard work of doing something new because that shows them that they are your standard of beauty, that you want to give them respect. It has been said that the difference between a rut and a grave is only how deep it is. And we don't want you guys buried. We want you living in life. We are constantly shown throughout the scripture that marriage is a representation of a relationship with God in himself, Jesus and his bride, the church. And as a believer, relationships with Christ are illustrated in the relationship between a husband and a wife. So relationship with Christ is vital to a health of a marriage. Jesus says, I came to give away. This is how we are to give. Jesus' way is a totally different way of doing things. 
Again, to follow the way of Jesus, you cannot buy into how everyone else does things. It is not power. It is not control. It is not domination. It is not manipulation. It is not who is better than who. It is about serving and giving. Our love for each other is supposed to come because he first loved us, so loving him is our first priority. And this is why we have told you constantly throughout this series that if you are not a believer, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, then this series is going to make no sense to you whatsoever. And so this morning, before we let you guys out of here and stuff, there are going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you are not a believer, we want to give you guys the opportunity to know who Jesus Christ is, to surrender your life to him. Because only then will you understand how to begin living the way that God calls us to throughout the scriptures. The people uh, prepare in the back. Also, if you maybe are, are in a rut in your marriage and you don't know how to get out, you can go pray with them as well. They would love to pray and talk with you about those things. The band's going to come up. They will do a couple songs. And as they do, we encourage you to take a few moments to partake in communion. Communion is where you break the cracker that represents Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be this people who are redeemed, a people who can live the way he calls us to live, that we can understand that he has first loved us so we can in turn begin to love our spouses and everyone else around us. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall on the very back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, so we give that opportunity every single week. And we worship God through fellowship and stuff, and part of us helping you to do that is we put food in the back. I made them hide it all at the end of first so that you guys are like, yeah, you're welcome. There's, There's... Uh, there's cinnamon rolls and stuff in the back, and they look very gooey and very yummy. And they're all back. Just for, you're welcome. Just because I love you, dignity and respect to you. It's all it's back. So, <laughs> so go in the back, grab something to eat, get to know some other people. If you're not in a gospel community, you can sign up for one, or maybe you can meet somebody, and maybe offer to go out to lunch or some dinner sometime this week with some other people. And on the back of the sermon notes, ask each other those questions that are on there. And, and be honest about this so that, so that we can grow into the people that God calls us to be. God has great plans for his people. He offers great love to us as a people. And we need to respond and live the way he calls us to live. And believe it or not, through his grace and his strength, you can actually live that way. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for being a God who has extended yourself so much to us as a people. And I ask that we would be those who understand your love more and more. So we would offer that to those around us more and more. Father, we very freely confess that every single one of us in this room have lived in such a way that we have not honored you or the gift that you have given to us. But we do not want that to be true for the rest of our lives. We want to live differently. We want to understand the great grace you have given to us. And as we understand that more and more, and your spirit reveals yourself to us more and more, we ask that you would teach us how to love our spouses, the spouses that we will have one day, uh, love you, and love the entire world around us as you call us to love. Father, that you teach us how to quit responding and reacting with words like, how dare you? Because quite honestly, you, Father, are the only one who has the right to say, how dare you? And yet you came and offered us great grace and great love. And so, 
renew us, restore us to those you call us to be. So our relationships are more adequately reflect your love for your bride, the church, the relationship that you have within yourself and the relationships that you intend for us to have with each other. We ask these things in your son's great and good and holy name. Amen.